Welcome along to episode three of the All Kinds of Balls podcast with me, your host, Sam Bartram. It's a slightly shorter pod this week as I've been away for a few days in London with the family. Uh, you know, all work and no play makes Sam a dull boy and all that. But we do have a packed podcast for you. Uh, it's 20 minutes of fun. We're going to be looking at the West Ham versus Man City Carabao Cup game, uh, giving an assessment on those two teams. We're going to be uh, looking at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Daniel Farker. Are they both in trouble? And dare I say, past the point of no return. Uh, we're also going to have a review of the uh, US Grand Prix, which uh, Max Verstappen won. And we're going to be looking at some top stories from the world of cricket this week. Um, England's great start to the T20 World Cup. Ben Stokes being back and Quinton de Kock. What was all that about? Enjoy the show. First up this week, I've been on the road to watch West Ham versus Man City at the London Stadium. So I had a trip to the capital with the family. So I thought, why not take in some high quality football while I'm there? Uh, and went to see this Carabao Cup game between West Ham and Man City. Well, it was interesting to visit the London Stadium, actually. It was my first visit to a West Ham game there. And uh, I think I had some sort of perceptions built up about the stadium beforehand, uh, essentially due to kind of it not being originally built as a football stadium. And some fans saying that uh, because of the big gap where there would be the running track previously, sort of impacts the atmosphere a bit. And because it's not built with a football atmosphere in mind, I, th I think particularly in comparison to the Berlin ground, the old Upton Park Stadium where West Ham used to play. Um, but I'll come back to that later. I mean, in terms of the overall kind of um, experience, it, yeah, it was a good, um, a good experience. The, first of all, security was really, really excellent. So we were all kind of um, patted down on the way into the stadium, all bags checked, which... You know, going along with youngsters, I think, is a good feature to have. It's not something that I've experienced at lots of football grounds, I have to say, particularly uh, in the home section. Um, so that that was really good. Um, the seats, very comfortable. And I think because the um, ground itself has quite a high camber, you get a really good view. You don't have to worry about kind of poking around people's heads. Um, something, again, particularly that I think about with taking kids when they can't see because there's someone tall in front. Well, that, that was an issue uh, at London Stadium, which was really, really good. Um, lots and lots of toilets, always a plus point as far as I'm concerned. I always have to scope out where the nearest toilet is. Um, and yeah, the, you know, there, there's toilets um, to spare. So that's really, really positive. Um, going back to the atmosphere. So yeah, I felt the atmosphere was okay. Uh, but you can't help but think that, you know, it was a, it was a capacity crowd 60,000 fans, um, they were making a lot of noise, but it's just when you're in a traditional football stadium um, that's sort of crowded around the pitch and there's no gaps, you, you can't help but think that creates a better atmosphere. And I think it probably does. It felt more like, I would say, an, an event, like a concert or something like that. Um, even in, in so much as they had a light show before kickoff. Um, it, for me, it lacked that kind of traditional football match feel. Um, and I can see why it's kind of divided opinion between the West Ham fans. Um, I have to say, as I said, my first West Ham game and uh, I was, I always think I'm forever blowing bubbles is kind of a strange song to start a match with. Really, it's kind of a sort of a melancholic song with the, you know, like my dreams, they fade and die line. It For me, it doesn't make you think, yeah, let's go. So they, they obviously add in the old United. 
United um, before, <laughs> at the end of the song, which which kind of gives it more of that kind of let's go and get them vibe. But um, yeah, it's interesting. But I guess it's a more traditional song. And with some of these traditions, um, you know, you don't necessarily think of writing an absolute kind of barnstorming banger. It's it's about kind of uh, keeping live those traditions. But that was that was interesting to hear. Um, in terms of the match itself, well, um, I would say the, the match followed a relatively kind of predictable pattern in a way. Um, so West Ham kind of sat back um, and Man City attacked for mo- and had most of the ball for most of the game. Um, West Ham worked really hard, defended resolutely. Uh, it was really, really nice to watch some of the football that Man City played. I mean, the match itself ended nil-nil and went to penalties, but uh, Man City had the better of the game. Uh, for me, it was really, really great to watch the 20-minute cameo that Phil Foden had at the end of the game. He had an immediate impact and he, he found he was on the ball everywhere. He just kind of roamed around in a sort of free roll. Um, that was really great to see. Again, from a Man City perspective, I felt that Raheem Sterling was relatively quiet. He's not been as explosive as, as normal recently and, again, had a relatively quiet game. Um, from the West Ham side of things, um, Issa Diop had a really strong game at centre-back. I felt he was um, a really, really positive part of their performance, really solid um, defensive performance. But for me, uh, Mark Noble was my man of the match. Um, I mean, as someone who wa- who's watched West Ham predominantly on television, I don't think you can really appreciate just how many sort of clever little runs he makes, the little passes, and some of the cross-field balls he was putting in were spectacular. And I think, obviously, coming towards the end of his West Ham career now. Um, but you can see why he's so well-loved um, by the West Ham fans. Um, in, in the end, though, it was uh, it went it was nil-nil, went to penalties, um, and West Ham won on penalties. All the penalties were scored, barring Phil Foden's, which he, he dragged wide, uh, the wonder boy, Missed the penalty, uh, and obviously a big result for West Ham. They've not now knocked mo- both of the Manchester teams out of the Carabao Cup, um, and yeah, they look a really strong, well organised, compact team under David Moyes. You can see why they're getting the results they are this season. Um, really good stuff, um, and I would fancy them to finish actually pretty high up this season as well. Obviously, they qualified for Europe last season. I could see them repeating that, um, if not slightly better in it. Um, so well done West Ham and uh, yeah, on to the next round for them. When I was in London this week, I went to watch the Phantom of the Opera musical. Well, today we're going to be asking for two Premier League managers, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Daniel Fark. Are they past the point of no return? Well, obviously last weekend it was the uh, shambolic display. Man United nil, Liverpool five. Um Liverpool were clearly exceptional. Uh, Mo Salah's on fire at the moment, scored a brilliant hat-trick. But you have to say that Man United looked completely all at sea. Uh, Defensively, a total shambles. It was all far too easy for Liverpool. Um, And you sort of have to ask what's going wrong for Man United. They had a strong start to the season, but it's all gone badly downhill. Uh, I mean, for me, I look at the Man United squad and I see real quality in attacking areas. There's there's no doubt about it. You know, they've got um Jaden Sancho who can barely even get a game at the moment. Um, you know, they've they've got real, real quality. But you look further back in the team and particularly in that midfield area, 
Um, I mean, Fred and McTominay, you know, both good players, but really, are they the sort of quality that's going to push Man United to the title and to the upper reaches of the league? I don't really think so. Um, and also, you have to ask, since Ronaldo has made his comeback, has that actually adversely affected Man United? Um, he's been involved in a few goals and he's played well in fits and starts, but it's actually... From, in, in my opinion, it's upset the balance of the team that they had before when they made a strong start to the season. And, you know, at, at 36, is Ronaldo tracking back as much as you'd like him? Is he able to give enough to the team other than just slot away those uh, those uh, chances at the other end? Um, not for me. Um, in conclusion, my viewpoint is I think that Man United should probably part ways with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer now. Uh, I think they've stuck with him for a long time. But if you look at his CV, he's not really done anything before he came to Man United. OK, had some success in the Norwegian league with Mulder. Um, you know, he won a few titles there. Uh, came to England, or well, Wales more specifically, with Cardiff City. You know, didn't pull up any trees there. And... Uh, yeah, and Man United, yeah, it's, he's been so-so, but I think possibly he's found himself a little out of his depth. Um, if you look at um, a similar situation, so so to take Chelsea as an example, um, Frank Lampard was there, obviously, big hero with the Chelsea fans, you know, everything seemed to be set up perfectly, and he was doing okay, but, um, you know, Chelsea were ruthless, they got rid of him, they brought in Tuchel, who they saw as the the man for the long term and you know look at how well Chelsea are doing now perhaps bringing in a similarly high caliber manager to Man United could make the difference so I'd be surprised if Solskjaer lasts the season but uh, he's still in situ at the moment we will see what happens with that um, and on to Norwich and Daniel Farker uh, well it, at the weekend it was uh, Chelsea 7 Norwich nil, an absolute embarrassment for Norwich I mean they were completely outclassed, completely exposed defensively. Um, I mean, they got promoted. And this is, this is the thing. Last season, got promoted. They were by far and away the best team in the championship. There was It wasn't even close. OK, they've lost Buendia. They've lost Skip. Um, arguably, their two best players from last season. But actually, um, you know, for me, I feel that Fark has sort of thrown the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. Um, He's totally abandoned the principles that got them promoted in the first place, the uh, 4-2-3-1 formation that served him so well in his sort of previous four years at Norwich. Um, and they've adopted this 3-5-2 formation, which, quite frankly, isn't working in the slightest. And you have to ask, where are all the attacking players for Norwich? Where's Cantwell, for example, um, not getting a game at the moment. Kieran Dowell, you know, I thought he'd be a huge part of the team this season. Not even close to the team. Um, they've brought in Rashika and they've brought in Solis. Neither of those are playing. Uh, and for me, I think the balance is all wrong. Um, I understand the idea is to be stronger defensively, but actually it's having the opposite effect because they've got no confidence. They can't score goals. And uh, 7-0, it's an absolute drubbing. Um, however... I do think um, that Norwich should give Farker more time because, quite frankly, you know, he's he's done a great job in the time he's been there um, beforehand. Yes, they're going for a really rough time at the moment. Uh, I think we have to give him a bit more time to turn it around, um, but he'll have to start uh, winning some games pretty quickly because it does not look good for Daniel. Uh, and this is the first time, I think, 
um, during his uh, stay as Norwich manager that I've actually thought I'm not 100% sure he really knows what he's doing with this squad. Um, time will tell, but uh, I think keep him for now. So the Sam Bartram verdict, Ollie out, Farker in for now. This week saw the latest round of the Formula One World Championship as uh, the Formula One Roadshow made its way to the US Grand Prix in Austin, Texas, the Circuit of the Americas. Um, and it was a really interesting race, a very different race to some of the uh, madcap races we've been having lately. Um, but it was kind of an intriguing tactical battle between Hamilton and Verstappen, between Red Bull and Mercedes this time around uh, to see who would come out on top. Um, so Verstappen started from pole to recap um, and Hamilton in second. But quite often at uh, Austin, the uh, person actually starting in second gets a bit of an advantage because they have the inside line for the first corner, which is quite a wide corner. So you can go in fairly deep from the inside and, and kind of make it out the other side. Um, and as it happened, Hamilton got a, the better start, um, overtook Verstappen at the start and led in the early part of the race. Uh, Verstappen made a bold call, or Red Bull made a bold call, I should say, to make an early pit stop, uh, 10 laps in. Uh, Verstappen sort of uh, stopped and was ultimately going to get the undercut on Hamilton. So Mercedes decided to leave Hamilton out to um, see if he could make his tyres last a few laps longer. Um, they brought Hamilton in um, sort of three laps later than Verstappen uh, to keep his tyres fresher. And then the same thing happened the second time around. Uh, Verstappen obviously leading at this point. Um, so uh, they uh, Red Bull brought Verstappen in and um, Hamilton stayed out for, I think it was a seven laps beyond Verstappen. But the idea being that Hamilton would then be a little bit further behind Verstappen. He'd have to catch him up, but would have stronger tyres at the end of the race to be able to make the pass. Well, it was, uh, it was yeah, really interesting race. Um, unfortunately for Hamilton, this is, uh, Verstappen looks really, really strong at the moment, as do Red Bull. And ultimately, Verstappen was able to hold on fairly comfortably in the end. Um, Hamilton didn't really get close enough to make a pass. Um, and the Red Bull pace just looks too strong at the moment. Um, with the Mexican Grand Prix coming up next and then Brazil, uh, which have sort of really sort of pro Red Bull tracks. They're ones that really should suit the Red Bull more than the Mercedes. Um, you'd have to say that unless um, Hamilton can make inroads in those circuits where actually the Mercedes wouldn't ordinarily be favourite, then um, you'd have to say with the three races to go in the Middle East at the end of the season, Hamilton may have too much work to do. He's now 12 points behind Verstappen in the title race. And um, yeah, if that goes to say... Uh, 25 by by the time the next two races are over, which um, potentially uh, I could I could easily see a Red Bull one two in Mexico. Uh, it might be too much ground for Hamilton to make up, um, but we'll see. One thing that can be said is it's probably the most exciting um, championship battle for a number of years. You've got two different teams, two supreme drivers in Verstappen and Hamilton, both pushing to the maximum. Um, and it's going to be nip and tuck to the end of the season. But advantage for Stappen, you'd have to say right now. Amazing piece of news for England fans this week, as Ben Stokes confirmed that he is fit again, and he will be going to Australia for the Ashes. 
which is fantastic news. I mean, Ben Stokes, what a player. Unquestionably my favourite cricketer of all time. Um, brilliant batting and bowling. And to be honest, England have missed the X factor that Stokes can produce uh, in the last few series. Um, whether it's getting a wicket at a time where, when it's, there's a flat pitch and nothing really happening and he just gives that little bit of extra energy and boost to the bowling performance or whether it's one of his masterful um, sort of buccaneering innings uh, with the bat. England have certainly missed him. So it would be great to have Stokes back. But of course, uh, the main event that's happening at the moment is the T20 World Cup, which is kicked off last week. And um, England going really well. They've won their first two matches very convincingly against West Indies, Indies and Bangladesh. Um, they're going incredibly well and uh, look really, really strong. Uh, Pakistan as well look very, very strong. It'll be interesting to see um, how they get on for the rest of the tournament. Um, but yes, I think uh, it could be England's time. So one major talking point from the T20 World Cup was the omission of South African wicketkeeper batsman Quinton de Kock from their game against the West Indies. So it transpired that basically de Kock was... Um, asked to take a knee with the rest of the team uh, on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement prior to the game starting, and he refused. Um, and not only that, he withdrew from the game because of it. Um, there then followed kind of two days of, of silence without de Kock making a statement. Um, obviously, social media uh, was rife with, um, is de Kock racist? Is that why he's uh, refusing to take the knee? Um, how did this come about? Um, I mean, it's a very strange situation, it sounds like. So essentially, on the morning of the game, uh, Cricket South Africa told the players to take the knee. This hadn't been discussed beforehand with any of them, which seems really odd to me. What, how, you know, particularly for a country like South Africa with their kind of uh, political past um, and the, obviously the apartheid regime. Um, you'd think that things like this would be at the forefront of the discussions that the teams are having. Um, but no, this was sort of raised to the players on the morning of the game. And uh, from de Kock's statement, which he sort of released a couple of days after um, the original omission, essentially it seems like it was just the, the fact that, you know, he didn't like being told what to do and, and being enforced to do something um, without kind of a proper discussion taking place beforehand um which you, you can understand to a point i mean it's certainly something that the uh, cricketing authorities in south africa should have been talking to the players about long in advance um nonetheless uh you know a very very strange situation and for me you know if, if you're not a racist and you've no issues then why not just take the knee with the rest of your team um you know, I could I couldn't really understand that. Uh, I mean, Dukak has obviously come out and said that he's actually from a uh, a mixed race household. Uh, you know, there isn't a racist bone in his body, etc. Um, but all the confusion that's been caused by this has obviously uh, had a huge impact on um, the way that Dukak's being viewed. Um, you know, by by the public, um, and you know, there might be some uh, serious work for him to kind of get people back on side again. Um, do I think the Cox's a racist? No, I, I don't think he is, to be honest. But, I, you know, it's just a very unpleasant and unnecessary situation that's occurred. Um, and really, um, you know, the cricketing authorities need to be having these conversations with players well in advance. Um, 
uh, England have come out and said that they will be carrying on taking the knee in their matches, uh, which is great. You know, it's a really clear statement. Everyone's behind it. Um, Jason Roy has come out in the press and said, yeah, you know, we're all behind it as a team. We're behind what it means. Ultimately, that's the sort of clear messaging that would have been good to come out of the South African camp. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that the South African cricket authorities will have a look at this incident and hopefully think about what they can do better in future. this week guys hope you've enjoyed the podcast and remember you can connect with the podcast via twitter at all kinds of balls also facebook at all kinds of balls or you can email the podcast at akobpodcast at gmail.com also leave us a voice message let us know your thoughts and we hope to include some of the best messages in future podcasts take care guys have a good week